All right. A couple of announcements and news for you. If you weren't aware of it, Gus and Tara Mackey had a little girl, Savannah. Actually, she wasn't little, was she? She was, she was healthy. To Romans. Yes, we are going back into Romans. We're going to back, back into Romans, but I, I, I do want to say this. The emphasis I believe the Lord has set in our hearts uh, has not shifted away from prayer. Uh, and I, I believe the Lord will has already put in my heart about three or four further messages on the subject of prayer that I believe will be visiting over the next few months, not all in one bite. But please do... Benefit from what the Lord has been sharing with us and grow and apply and wrestle in the realm of prayer so that there can be fruit from what God is sowing into our midst. And I'm I'm again just encouraged by hearing so many folks experiencing their own their own breeze in their sail of prayer and the, the experience of God's grace to get with God, pray, carry the burden and the weight of, of God's heart in their own heart. So if that's something that you're uh, not really jumping into with both feet. I want to encourage you to do that. Let there be extraordinary, as Jonathan Edwards said, extraordinary times of prayer in our lives right now. And we'll, and we'll visit that topic further um, later on. Let me, let me give us an intro to the intro this morning. Every year, keep one finger there in Romans 10 and turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Every year, we visit a topic at some point in the year. And I've called these little messages salt and light messages. So about once a year, a message on salt and light pops into the arena. Try to do it sometime, usually around this time of year. And I believe the reason the Lord has us to do that is there's this wonderful illustration that's given here strategically placed in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's, it's within the, the message that's preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and if you know anything about that message, you know it's the, the message that has all the Beatitudes in it, where Jesus lists off, blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. And, and if you follow the things that are blessed in God's economy, you, you get educated that God doesn't work His kingdom the way that the world works. Because what the world says is blessed, God turns around and says, well, well no, this, these guys are the ones that are blessed. And so there's this adjustment thing that God gives to us that says, you know, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, if you're going to walk in the kingdom of God, then you need to know it operates differently. And here's, here's come the things that God says are blessed. You know, blessed if you're poor in spirit. Blessed if you mourn. Now, these are not things we're standing in line for. Nobody wants these things, but yet God says, this is the place of blessing because I'm working in those things. And then he puts this little salt and light illustration in here, and then he moves on to a whole bunch of activity. Uh, Everything from, uh, you've heard it said that uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, if you look upon a woman to lust after her. So he starts laying out these principles of the kingdom and how they get lived out. And before he gets to that, though, this verse is given. And I believe the reason for this verse, before I read it, I believe the reason for this verse and the reason for this picture is the concern of the Savior should be our concern as well, that we would be a people who gain all this kingdom knowledge and get it onto ourselves to the exclusion of letting it out to touch other people with it. And that's a danger. It's a danger in the body of Christ. We face a danger all the time of becoming ingrown. That all that we're hearing, all this wisdom from God, and that's why I say, you know, parenting wisdom. Man, you get these kids and they don't come with instructions. And you start bumping into problems with them and they grow. And, man, it morphs into something weird. And, man, I didn't know I was signing on for this thing. And you want some input. God, help me here. And God gives wisdom. And he usually starts with the parents and says, hey, okay, you sure you want help? Because you're a huge part of the problem. Oh, great. You know, I wanted you to fix that one over there. But God gives us wisdom to fix us, to have wisdom in dealing with situations that arise in people's lives. Marriage, marriage isn't a walk in the park. It has its challenges in it. But God gives wisdom for that as well. So here's all this wisdom, and you and I can begin to collect it all to ourselves, and let's not let it out. Let's not let it, you know, this is the best kept secret going. 
But the life of the gospel, not just the gospel message where sinners need to be saved by the grace of God, but the life of the gospel is not to be contained either. It's to spill out of our lives. And so all this wisdom and instruction that comes in the Sermon on the Mount of how life should look for those who live it kingdom-styled needs to have this little encouragement given to us. And listen in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So right in the midst of all this instruction, Jesus says, look, make sure, make sure you guys are living like salt. And what a great illustration that is. And I'm not going to develop this very far. um, but, But salt to these guys would have had some common meanings. You know, salt was, was something that was, was very commonly used. It had qualities that were important to that day that, that you and I don't appreciate quite as much because of refrigeration and some other elements that we have. But, but salt brought, it brought flavoring, just like it does for us today. It brought flavoring to the foods that they ate. And so there's this, this thing being said in this passage. You are the salt of the earth. You bring a particular flavor by your life. So people need to be able to taste what's in your life. And, and it's a good question for us to, to weigh. You know, is my life, does it have a flavor to it, for one thing? And if it does, is it accessible to people? Can people taste what's in my life? Can they taste the distinctiveness of the presence of God that goes on in how I live, what motivates me, what convictions I have? Is that something that God is tasteable in our lives? And secondly, salt was used as a preservative. We take salt, if you had meat, you, know, you couldn't just slap it in the freezer and get to it next week. You, you would take salt and you would rub it into the meat. And it would act to to interfere with the, the process of decay that was going on in that meat. Now, it couldn't make the, the meat not decay, but it could interfere with it, and it could help to preserve it to some degree. And interesting, I think that's the, the presence of the church in the world is that way. We are the salt in the earth. We are that which is, is hindering decay that sin has brought about in the culture and in the world that we live in all around us. Is, is death and decay. Sin produces that. It erodes and eats away at every fiber of the existence of man that you and I can put our eyes on. But yet the, the, the salt of the church is supposed to be rubbed into the earth in such a way that it impedes that decay process that takes place. Now, light. Light would have particular qualities and characteristics to it as well. It brings about a certain effect when it touches humanity. It has the ability, you know, you and I do this. You walk in at night, all the lights off are in your house. You hear a noise or you get up to get some water. If it's really, really dark in there, what do you do? Turn the light on, right? That light immediately, immediately it it points you, it gives you direction, it helps you to know what to avoid. It it keeps you from confusion, right? I mean, you've got that half-awake thing going on, and you're walking through the house, and you're tripping over stuff, and you turn the light on, and and instantly, there's clarification. Okay, okay, avoid that. Walk over here. That's where I'm trying to get. Light does that, doesn't it? You are the light of the world. See, that's the effect that you and I as believers bring into the world. We, we bring this effect of clarity of where the obstacles are. That's a hole. You're going to fall in that. And, and you're going to look how deep it is. You're going to be harmed as you do. The life of the believer brings that kind of clarity. But, you know, one of the other things that light does is, is light, by its very nature, dispels darkness. 
When you flip the light on, darkness runs from it. It goes in, and you can see it. You see it all over this building. It goes and hides in the corners. Look at it. Darkness runs from the light. And see, so when the, the body of Christ is being light in the world, it is, it is dispersing darkness. And that's an effect we're supposed to have as well. Now, what's interesting in this is not just that Jesus would teach about some qualities of salt and light, but that he was concerned about whether salt was being salt and whether light was being light. And more importantly, whether it was touching anything when it was being those things. You can be light sticking underneath a, a bushel and hide the light and you're not having an effect. This is a concern about having an effect. This is Jesus declaring to his disciples, make sure you are having an effect. This is the principles I've given you to live out. Do it so that men may glorify your Father in heaven. Make sure you are having an effect. And the, the, the element in this passage of salt and light would have been two things that would have been common things in people's lives. Things that were within arm's reach. And I, I think that's to characterize you and I. You and I are to live our lives within arm's reach of other people. Within arm's reach of the body of Christ. Within arm's reach of the world. So that you and I can be salt and can be light in a world that needs to see the declaration of God and who He is, and we can glorify God in doing so. So we need to come back to this point sometimes. Am I being salt? Am I, am I being rubbed into anyone's life? Is there distinct flavor? And not only is there distinct flavor, but, but is my life accessible so that anybody can taste the flavoring of my life? Is, is my light bring clarity to anyone else? Am I involved in people's lives in such a way that the light of God that's in me brings clarity to others? See, this is a message that, uh, well, everybody really needs to lay hold of this. If you've been saved for a long time, your tendency is to forget how to do some of this, to forget how to have a collision course with other people so that these things can take place. If you're new to the kingdom of God, you may be celebrating the fact that, okay, I understand my sin separated me from God. I needed to be saved. I've called upon him by faith, and, and I am now in a relationship with God and going to heaven. And I come to church so that I can learn more and more about how to enjoy this life. Well, that's true. But yet the Bible places upon us as disciples a role of responsibility. That's not merely the call of your life. The call of your life is to touch other people. And, and this morning, I want everybody wrestling with the question, am I affecting others with my saltiness and with my light? Am I affecting others? Don't, don't, don't tell me your salt and don't tell me your light. Uh, that's really not the question that's being raised here. The question being raised is, are we affecting others? And maybe the way to do that is for you to think in your own mind. What are their names? Who are the people that I can put down in my life and recognize I'm having an effect upon people's lives? That is a means of being prideful or gloating, but, but in self-evaluation, I think we need to go there on occasion in our own hearts. God intends to accomplish His sovereign will through His people. When we get here into Romans, we're going to see that in just a moment. God's intention is that He has a sovereign will to accomplish. But what you don't find in the Bible is God determining that He will do it apart from man. You find God joining His sovereign purpose into man. And so Jesus declaring, you need to be salt, you need to be light. That needs to be occurring. Because God's sovereign purpose is going to be worked out. And there's a little bit of mystery here. This goes back to the, the, the very context of all that we're looking at in Romans of the involvement of a sovereign decree and plan predestined by God with the human responsibility of what do you and I do on a daily basis. God has joined these things together. And there's a great mystery here of how our activity brings about God's plan and how the two of them go together. There's a quote I put in your outline by Wayne Grudem that really helps us see these two dimensions well. He says, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties 
to cause them to act as they do. Now think about that in, in the sense of salt. Salt does what it does because God has ordained for it to do what it does. Does that make sense? Light. You know, God didn't inherit any of this stuff. Remember, God created. So God made things to have certain characteristics. He made light to dispel darkness. He made light to bring clarity into what we see. God made it that way. He gave light. Now, if you're a scientist, you take it apart. You know, there's particles traveling a beam, etc. That's light. Well, but God gave light its qualities and its characteristics so that it would have the effect that it has. That's a God thing. Even though you and I can explain it in a natural sense. You know, salt has a chemical equation, etc. that causes it to do what it does. Okay, can you remember this? God didn't inherit the periodic table. God said, okay, let's see. All this stuff's already defined. Let's see. Salt already does that. Uh, no, no. God, God gave salt its characteristics so that it would have the effect. So God's sovereignty is in salt. Can you see that? He's already put it in there that it would have the effect. But then he turns around and says, make sure you rub it into the meat. And he's actually in that as well. Look here. For any of these events, rain and snow, grass growing, sun and stars, the feeding of animals, we can give a completely satisfactory natural explanation. A botanist can detail the factors that cause grass to grow, such as sun, moisture, temperature, nutrients in the soil, etc. Yet scripture says that God causes the grass to grow. A meteorologist can give a complete explanation of factors that cause rain, humidity, temperature, atmospheric pressure. Yet the scripture says that God causes the rain. This shows us that it is incorrect for us to reason that if we know the natural cause of something in this world, then God did not cause it. How many of us come to situations like that? It's like, well, that didn't happen because of God. I mean, this happened because that and that and that happened. How many times do we reason that way? Because we can explain it naturally or because science has taken it apart and can explain it. Okay, remember, God was here before science. God put his fingerprint and his activity into the earth before we began to discover what was there. God was there making what was there. So he's the primary factor in all this. The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created thing so that these things themselves bring about the results that we see. In this way, it is possible to affirm that in one sense, events are fully 100% caused by God and fully 100% caused by the creature as well. Now, can you see that? Now, this is, this, this is very helpful when you wrestle through that, well, is it, is it divine sovereignty? Is it human responsibility? Yes. 100%? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And you can see that here, but if you, if you choose to only look through the microscope of human responsibility, then you say, well, no, it can't be that. I'm looking right here at why it was the way it was. But if you major in sovereignty, you look at God and you say, well, no, it can't be that because I'm looking right here at why it was. But yet in God, it is both. He has ordained them both. Now, now look at the passage we're going to look at today. Go back to Romans chapter 9. And what I actually Romans chapter ten. What I want to make sure that we catch here as we read through this. If if we stay with the salt and light illustration, when you stumble through the room in the dark at night, and you go over and flip the switch on, why do you do that? You do it because you are convinced of the characteristics of light. You'd never seen a light switch and you never knew anything about electricity and light and you wouldn't do it. But you're convinced light because God has ordained light to have certain abilities to dispel darkness, to bring ability to see. Because God has given those abilities and characteristics to light, that's what makes you turn the light on. 
So I want to make sure we see this as we walk through this passage. You don't want to begin to exclude the sovereign activity of God from the human responsibility dynamics because I believe it's the sovereign activity that gives us the, the impetus to engage the activity. It's, it's because God has given light certain characteristics. Sovereignly, he has given light characteristics. I turn the light on. Because salt has certain characteristics, I put it on my food. So I need to know God has given certain characteristics into our life. Because God is involved in evangelism a certain way, I share the gospel. Now, if I extract the sovereignty of God from evangelism, it would be like removing the character of salt and the character of light, but insisting that I should use the light switch. I use the switch because God has put characteristics of activity in that light. And the same is true for evangelism. Let's look here in Romans 10. Back up into verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, I don't have the time to go back into the backdrop for Romans 10. Remember, it's Romans 8 and Romans 9, where Paul has laid all this heavy predestination election stuff on us. And now he comes to this passage, and, and in this passage there is human responsibility everywhere. Everyone who believes, all who call on him, everyone who calls. Right? You're responsible to believe. You're responsible to respond to the gospel. Yet we know God is sovereign in electing who, who, who is saved. Then there's responsibility of the church. And when you see this breakdown here, we see that to, to call on God for salvation, one needs to believe. So calling on God is linked to believing. And then it goes further and says, believing God is linked to somebody telling them. So if someone's going to believe, it's going to be because the message gets imparted. Well, and the message gets imparted by somebody being sent. So all along the way here, now there's other human responsibility that gets highlighted. The church, the role of the church is highlighted in sending the gospel, in speaking the gospel, and presenting the gospel. So God is sovereign in all this, but yet in that sovereignty is the outworking of man's responsibility in those actions. When you look at this up close, I want us to, to see how God has ordained his sovereign will to come to pass through the vehicle of man's activities. Let's look at Paul just for a moment here. I'll put in your outline a couple of scripture verses here that, that really are extremely clarifying for what motivated Paul. Paul is, is motivated by knowing Romans 8, knowing Romans 9. He knows that God has predestined. He knows that God has, before time began, God has ordained. He knows this stuff. But when you and I encounter that, we put it under the microscope, we exclude God, we, we tend to, to look at a dynamic that, that produces fatalism. It produces in us the thought that, well, if he knows all that's going to happen, then why evangelize? Why go bring the gospel to others? Look here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the verse that's there, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Some of your translations will say, for the sake of the elect, 
so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now, chew on that for a little while. Look what's in that verse. A declaration that God chooses those who will be saved. A declaration of the elect that God has called out for salvation. And right alongside of it, no apology and no further explanation from Paul is a man who says, I have been suffering and enduring much. Why? For the sake of those who are elect. That they may obtain salvation. Whoa, whoa, Paul, wait a minute. Lighten up, pal. They're chosen of God. They're elect. You don't need to get so lathered up, man. If God shows them, they're going to be saved. And look at all that you're going through, Paul. You're laboring. You're working hard. You're, you're in danger. You're suffering physically to bring the gospel to people that God already chose them. Paul, don't you understand the doctrine of predestination? Whatever God chooses to occur, it's going to occur. Now, you know what? That sounds like that's how we should reason this thing. It's not what you see in Paul. Paul saw his activity in light of the sovereignty of God as critical. He must go. He must suffer. He must wade through the difficulty of this in order that they may obtain their salvation. There was no removing the activity of man from the activity of God. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, Paul again. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. The, the word needed to be preached. We see that in Romans. It needs to be preached. That is the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations but it's now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, what you see in Paul is a man who understood divine election. But in no way did it impede Paul's passion to present the gospel. I must preach. I labor and strive. We proclaim and teach every man. This is not a man who in any way is casual, but it is a man fully informed about the sovereignty of God. And I think in there is a key to whether or not you and I will preach the gospel. I find many folks who don't have a biblical view of the sovereign activity of God who lack severely a passion for evangelism. Although they would say that given the nature of man and his response and man's human will and the freedom of all that, you would think that it would make sense that everybody who believed that way would be rabid evangelists. But I've not noticed that. And this would be true on both sides of the equation. It's not as though those who, who grasp the doctrines of grace are always rabid evangelists either. But Paul was. And in church history, you'll find others that were as well. Let me read you a quick little story here from the life of William Carey. How many of y'all have heard, from, heard of William Carey? Besides being a little college on the Gulf Coast. they got William Carey colleges all over the place. There's a reason why. Listen a little bit about William Carey's life. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And that would not have been Paul's response, would it? Carey was impressed with earlier Moravian missionaries and was increasingly dismayed at his fellow Protestants' lack of missions interest. In response, he penned an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times and he castigated fellow believers of his day for ignoring it. Quote, 
Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Kerry didn't stop there. In 1792, he organized a missionary society. And at its inaugural meeting, preached a sermon with the call, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Within a year, Carey, John Thomas, a former surgeon, and Carey's family, which now included three boys and another child on the way, were on a ship headed for India. Thomas and Carey had grossly underestimated what it would cost to live in India. In Carey's early years, there were miserable. When Thomas deserted the enterprise, Carey was forced to move his family repeatedly as he sought employment that could sustain them. Illness racked the family and loneliness and regret set in. Quote, I am in a strange land, he wrote. No Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. But he also retained hope. Well, I have God, and his word is sure. He learned Bengali with the help of a pundit, and in a few weeks began translating the Bible into Bengali and preaching to small gatherings. When Carrie himself contracted malaria, and then his five-year-old Peter died of dysentery, it became too much for his wife, Dorothy, whose mental health deteriorated rapidly. She suffered delusions, accusing Carrie of adultery and threatening him with a knife. She eventually had to be confined to a room and physically restrained. This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me, Carrie wrote, though characteristically added, but I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding, and God is here. In December, of 18, December 1800, after seven years of missionary labor, Carrie baptized his first convert, Krishna Pal. And two months later, he published his first Bengali New Testament. By the time Carrie died, he had spent 41 years in India without a furlough. His mission could, could count only some 700 converts in a nation of millions. But he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. His greatest legacy was in the worldwide missionary movement of the 19th century that he inspired. Missionaries like Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, and David Livingston, among thousands of others, were impressed not only by Carey's example, but by his words. Expect great things, attempt great things. Now, why do I point out William Carey in the context of Romans 10? Let me tell you a little bit about Carey's theology here for a moment. Your outline there is a quote from John Piper. He said, Carey's book, plus his own amazing 40-year career in India, have immortalized him as the father of modern missions. That is what Carey is known for. And the reason that I point out his connection with Edwards and Brainerd is to show that the great era of modern missions was born in the soil of sovereign grace. It was born in the hearts of men and women who believed in the doctrines of unconditional election and predestination. Besides the Bible, there probably are no missionary documents that are more influential than Brainerd's, his diary, Life and Diary, and Carey's Inquiry, the one I just referenced. And both of them come from what we can call sovereign grace men. And what's even more interesting is that behind... Each of these young men stood great older pastors who were known for their passionate commitment to the sovereignty of God and salvation and who loved and encouraged the two young missionaries. Behind Brainerd stood the massive theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards, who spent the last years of his own life writing and ministering among the Indians of western Massachusetts, as did David Brainerd, a man who lived passionately to see the Indians in, in, New, in the New England states get saved and come to know Christ. Behind Carey stood the great Andrew Fuller, who took part in Carey's ordination and helped form the Baptist Missionary Society that sent him out. Carey called him the faithful rope holder. Both Edwards and Fuller loved and lived the doctrines of sovereign grace. So what I want you to see is that primary impulses of the modern missionary movement came from the hearts of people who were emphatically doctrinal in their orientation to Scripture and who had been captivated by the sovereignty of God's grace. John Alexander, a former president of InterVarsity, said in a message at Urbana 67, At the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could not be a missionary. Now, after 20 years of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believed in the doctrine of predestination. 
it gives hope that Christ most certainly has a people among the nations. Now, I think there is a little key ingredient here about understanding sovereignty and doing evangelism. Might it be that a biblical understanding and mindful awareness of this doctrine of God's sovereignty would release us into evangelistic endeavors? Might that really be the case? Listen, listen for a moment. In your own experience, Alpha is coming. Again, been in the church for any length of time. You've had many opportunities to invite people to Alpha, to invite them to a meeting, to, to open an opportunity to talk about the gospel with friends and neighbors. But it's hard to invite them, isn't it? What, what's, what's at the core? Now think this through with me. What's at the core of this? Why do we hesitate to invite people? Because we, we think they're going to not be interested. We think they're going to say no. We don't think they're going to become violent. Most of us don't feel like we're going to get stoned if we ask them and they say no and they're going to break out into violence. But there's something in us that just kind of, it doesn't have an anticipation that they're going to respond favorably to what we're asking them. And since none of us like to go where things aren't favorable, we tend to not want to go there. What if we understood the, the doctrine of God's sovereign, gracious activity in saving man. What if we understood that if I, that what my invitation might look like, because I am mindful of the fact that God is the one who draws people to himself, because I'm mindful of that, what if I went to the person loaded in my mind with that thought? With the anticipation that the response from them may be, you're kidding me. You guys have something at your church like that? Man, you know, lately... I have been so struggling with my life and, and the meaning of it and the purpose for it. And I've just had some things go on that I've just been confused about. And, man, I've, just, I've been so depressed. Man, I can't believe you're asking me. I would, I would love to come to something like that. What if you knew that's how the person would respond? Would anybody here hesitate? If you just were convinced, well, what would cause them to respond that way? Your slick sales job? The impressive alpha brochures that we'll give out to you in a couple of weeks? I know you can't resist. Irresistible brochures. <laughs> no, what, what would cause me to feel like I should ask them would be the thought that God's already been there. God's already at work in their hearts. I'm just giving them an opportunity to respond to what God's already done. There's no weight on me. I don't need to figure out the ultimate way to say I should ask God. I should be open to him, but I shouldn't be paralyzed by whether or not I can present it at exactly the right moment, exactly the right way, exactly the right time. I, see, I can get released into inviting him because I know ultimately for anyone to be responsive to God, that's a sovereign God's activity. And if I'm convinced of that, and I'm convinced that he is actively doing that with people, then might it be this person in my life that he's doing that with right now? or this person, or that one. I should ask them. I may walk right into what God's doing in that person's life. As a matter of fact, God, I'm going to be praying that you will be doing that in their life. And that's what we all should be doing right now. We should be responsibly praying that God begins to do that in the hearts of everybody who's going to be getting asked. That God will move upon their lives in such a way. You know, David Brainerd, his, his ministry to the Indians, he writes this in his journal. June 28th. The Indians, being now gathered, a considerable number of them, from their several and distant habitations, requested me to preach twice a day to them. <laughs> they asked this guy to preach twice a day to them. These are Indians. Being desirous to hear as much as they possibly could while I was with them. I cheerfully complied with their motion and could not but admire the goodness of God who I was persuaded had inclined them thus to inquire after the way of salvation. Why were they so interested? Because God had been there before Mr. Brainerd had been there. But Mr. Brainerd, Mr. Brainerd lived a hard life. It was not an easy thing to live on the frontier and bring missions to the lost. 
Mr. Brainer was a man fully convinced of the doctrine of sovereignty. Yet this is not a man who decided to stay home because he was convinced of the doctrine of sovereignty. Neither was Mr. Carey, a man who stayed home, yet he put his family and his life in the most difficult of circumstances because he believed God was saving and he was to be involved. He saw that. Mr. Brainerd goes on and says that God may in such a manner bless the means I have used with Indians and other places where there is yet no appearance of it. If so, may his name have the glory of it. For I have learned by experience that he only can open the ear, engage the attention, and incline the heart of poor, benighted, prejudiced pagans to receive instructions. This is what I would call Star Trek Christianity. If you were a Star Trekian years ago, you know, the, the, the cast and crew was going to places where no man had gone before. Well, in evangelism, we may be going where no man has gone before, but, but we are going where God has gone before us. And if I'm armed with that, and I go to approach somebody about the gospel, and I realize in my mind, it is the inclination of God in their life that will make them receptive. And He is the one who is active in that. I may walk right into that, might I? When I are saved, God does save people. We're here, and so might he do in somebody else's life. And armed with that, if all I'm armed with is the stubbornness of man's sin, the unwillingness of man, dead in his trespasses and sins, and all that the Bible informs me about, the wickedness and deceitfulness of this world, if I'm armed with all that and I'm bringing the gospel, I feel like I'm selling this lemon. I can't get anybody to want this. Look what's out there. Look what's holding their life. But if I'm armed with the fact that God's at, God's at work there, God's touching that person, and I walk into that. Might that person say, yes, thank you. I mean, you guys have heard some of the Alpha testimonies. They're kind of just like that. I mean, I don't remember all of them, but you know, I remember the Venturello stick out in my mind. And, you know, somebody here stuck a little brochure in their mailbox. Right? Now, these brochures are nice, but they ain't that nice, you know? And when they opened that up and saw that thing, or was it they did? The, no, no, actually, they gave that to another neighbor, I think, who came. The Venturellos had given it to somebody else who came that way. God's the one who goes before us. And if I know that, might that release us into evangelism? See, the sovereignty of God is not, it's not something separated from evangelism. And so when we come to this issue of being salt, being light, you and I have a responsibility in it that is armed with the sovereignty of God. That God is about saving people. You and I are called to be salt and light. Now, Jesus, who, who knows about sovereignty, is telling us the importance that let your light so shine before men that they may see. So it's critical for Mr. Carey to go to India. It's critical for Brainerd to be amongst the Indians. It's critical for you and I to respond. It's critical that we go. It's part of God's plan. Mysteriously, it certainly is. And it's the call of every disciple. Here in this building, no one escapes this. Go, therefore, into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That is for every one of us. And there are opportunities here. And I, I want to highlight just a couple that are that's opportunities in our midst where God has given us a place to go. We have an opportunity. Salt and light, we usually kind of bring an emphasis for this for a, for a month, and we'll do so in the month of September. Of opportunities for, for you and I to be salt in somebody's life, for us to be light to bring the clarity of the gospel into somebody's life, which means I, I, I'm going I'm to touch someone's life. And in the realm of evangelism, we have the opportunity, we start Alpha at the end of September, to go into people's lives with the gospel, using Alpha as a vehicle to express that gospel and to let people hear the gospel. This morning, I, I think the greatest place for us to start would be to ask God, God, who? Who is in my sphere of life that you want me to reach out to? Don't qualify in your own mind whether they would or wouldn't respond. Remember, nobody responds apart from the grace of God. And if the grace of God comes after that person, they'll be responding. So don't be intimidated by the things that chase us away from sharing with others. Walk through the door that God has gone before you into that person's life. But you need to be asking right now, Lord, who is that? Who is in my life? 
I need to begin to pray for them. I need to bathe this in prayer because you've called me to pray as well. And the human responsibility in these chapters doesn't release us from prayer. doesn't release us from, from evangelism. We are to go into these lives. There is a link here. How are they to call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? That someone is in this building. This is a, a building full of someones to preach the gospel, to open an invitation, to reach out and extend ourselves into people's lives. So I, I want to I challenge the church that during this coming month, and I, I think it's good to take a month and set a course for a month, that I, I'm going to... I'm going to break out of some of my mold that I get in. I, mean, I kind of create this life that's this big, has its boundaries on it. I don't ever venture outside. I don't take any chances. I don't step out in faith, talk to that person, initiate a conversation, draw somebody in, uh, invite them to something. I, I, just, I just come to church. I do those same things over and over again. Now listen, this is not just an evangelistic thing, but I think there's great opportunities in evangelism. You, you, can, you can do that amongst the body of Christ as well, and I think we need to. I think we're, we're growing weak in the category of how well we are caring for people that are new in this setting. And God has brought many people new into this church. And I don't think that we're doing a sufficient job of building our lives toward them, of being salt to them. And see, that's indicative of we've, we've constructed our world to be this big, and the people I have in it are the people I have in it. And I kind of don't have room for anybody else. But then God starts bringing people in. And at some point, I have to hear that go in me. Go into all the world. Go outside of your box. Go way over here. Go, go across the building. Go into the foyer. Go find a face you don't know. I mean, some of this stuff, you don't have to be William Carey and die in the mission field somewhere. It matters that you and I just go right here. I mean, when was the last time you had a conversation with and began to relate to somebody that you... You don't know who they are in this church. I'm letting that one stick for a little bit. Right? I mean, you recognize how easy it is to get in a rut? I know, I know my 18 people. I don't even get around to them every week, but I, I get to about seven or eight of them every week when I come. and They're the ones I talk to. And, and there's those new people that God's trying to draw in to walking in the kingdom He's given me an ability to be hospitable to them, to open my life. Who are you? Can, can we get together? You know, I've seen you here a couple of times. Um, you know, we meet for covenant group on this night. I'd love for you to be my guest. You know, I'm not trying to push you into something, but would love for you to come. You know, are we pursuing? Are we salt? Be salt. Don't become unsalty. Be light. Turn it on. Bring clarity. Dispel darkness in people's lives. Be these things. Not just... Well, we're loving being saved. Let's love others being saved as well. Let's love others going on for the glory of God. Let's love others growing in their walk so that they can become part of expanding the kingdom of God in this place and through all that we're called to be together. See, be salt, be light in the earth together today. All right, I'm out of time. Matt, come on up here just for a moment, bro. There were many application thoughts that you can glance through there in your notes as to ways that you can go, areas that you can send others in going as well. But can, we, can we hold before us something that God's been teaching us? We have not because we ask not. Let us ask this morning. I'm going to want us all to stand up. Let us ask this morning for something. Let us ask God for a burden. Let us ask God to touch our hearts and our lives in such a way that we are under the weight of being effective in other people's lives. Let's, let's, let's not take a message and try and go live it out in, in the flesh. Let's ask God to put it on our heart in such a weight that we are compelled from the inside out. And let's, let's be praying for that as a church together.
Lord, I look at men like the Apostle Paul, William Carey, David Brainerd, the list could go on and on. Men who affected the world. And Lord, maybe you haven't called our effect to be as large as their effect. But you have called all of us to be salt and to be light. To have an effect upon others. To to live within arm's reach of others. And, And Lord, there are many of us in many places here this morning. Lord, would you speak uniquely to each one of us? Lord, whether we are people who lead in ministry and yet we have built boxes around our lives to say, I will only live within this box. I will only touch these things. I will only touch these people on these occasions. Lord, give us a heart that says, go, go. It's always saying go. It's always calling us to break out of our box. Lord, there's some who are here been involved in the church, involved in covenant groups. Lord, but you know, they they've never invited another person into their home. Never extended themselves, never gone to lunch with anybody, never invited somebody to an event, never opened their life personally. They'll, they'll come to meetings. They'll respond when a leader asks for something, but they are not the initiators. Lord, would you touch every heart here? Lord, what kind of church would this be if everyone who walks through the door owns the responsibility to go into somebody else's life? Go there. What a radical place this would be to walk in with people whose eyes are lifted up off of themselves, lifted outside of their their own box of comfort and looking under the horizon. Who can I touch next? Who's here by God's purpose that needs my involvement just to say, hey, who are you? Great to meet you. Let me tell you about who I am. Let's get to know each other. Lord, just just an act of kindness. May go a long way, Lord. So, Lord, whether some here are needing to become the next William Carey or just learning how to be a better neighbor, Lord, would you affect our hearts and affect our lives. Lord, that we, when we stand before you, Lord, and we are there to receive the reward of our lives, Lord, may we so enjoy the fullness of the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Through your life, the glory of my life was seen. You let your light so shine in such a way that men glorified me. Oh, And we would receive your embrace in that moment, Lord. Fill us, Lord. And Lord, as we approach Alpha, Lord, Alpha is not the only means of evangelism, but it's one you've given to us. God, as as we approach, Lord, right now, would you begin to place in our hearts a sense that, that you go before us. You go before us into the lives of people, Lord. Give us boldness because you go before us. And Lord, for everybody that's going to say yes, it's going to be because you went before us and you touched their lives. Lord, that should not cause us to not invite. It should compel us to invite. For Lord, you're touching some of these lives. And some people are longing for the gospel. They are longing for it, Lord. Put us in touch with that. Let us be salt. Let us be light. That we may glorify you in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.